Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Split Rock Books, a locally owned, independently minded bookstore located in the heart of Hudson Valley. Split Rock carries a curated selection of new books with a focus on literary fiction and nonfiction, small presses, local interest, and children's books. We host a variety of family programming, book clubs, readings, signings, and discussions. And we're located steps from the Cold Spring train station, which is just over an hour from New York City. Learn more or shop online at splitrockbks.com. And we're brought to you by Broadway Books, a locally owned independent bookstore that's been happily supplying books to readers in Northeast Portland, Oregon, and beyond since 1992. Broadway Books hosts dynamite events that feature both established and emerging writers. We support neighborhood schools and literary organizations and hire people who are knowledgeable and passionate about what we sell in order to keep our stock fresh and eclectic. Find your next great read or shop online at broadwaybooks.net. I used to wonder why my mom had so many clothes. Scarves overflowed from her closets and pants and cardigans took up permanent residence in laundry baskets in the hall. Why did one person need so many clothes? I thought about this recently as I stood in my own closet and marveled at the number of things in there that I seldom, if ever, wear anymore. On one side were the work clothes that fit but aren't super comfortable. Next to them, the clothes that haven't fit since I gained my COVID-19 pounds but I was still hoping to get back into. On the other side were dresses and pants that really don't fit anymore but I've been holding on to them for sentimental or financial reasons. I spent way too much on that green skirt and I wore that halter on my honeymoon. I've been pregnant four times, and I have three children. I've done every fad diet you can remember, and even some of the ones you'd like to forget. Like that Suzanne Summers thing in the mid-2000s? As an adult, I've been a size 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, and I've fought my body for years, stuffing it into Spanx to look good in a dress, or sucking in my gut when I meet new colleagues. I like looking good, but I have been thinking lately about how problematic my definition of, quote, looking good even is. What does it mean to be beautiful? I'm tired of trying to fit into some capitalistic beauty standard I've seen on the cover of magazines. I have to stop falling for that nonsense. I have to stop battling my body, if not only for me, then for my kids who are watching. And who, if I'm not more careful and more self-assured in my own appearance, are going to grow up and struggle with the same things I have. So I've been working on it. I finally got rid of my bathroom scale. It just made me feel bad. It wasn't helping. I am a big girl. And I'm beautiful. Unlike what I've been led to believe for the decades I've been alive, that's possible. I'm fat. And I'm beautiful. If you've ever felt like you're at war with your own body, if you used to wear red or pink and now wear black to try to blend in, if you find yourself shying away from being in photographs because you don't like the way you look, I urge you to seek out the work by today's guest. I am bigger now than I've ever been before. And Virginia Soul Smith is helping me not only to be okay with that, but to love it and to figure out how to raise my kids with different patterns. I can't wait for you to hear today's episode. As a journalist, Virginia Soul Smith has reported from kitchen tables and grocery stores, graduated from beauty school, and gone swimming in a mermaid's tail. Virginia's latest book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, investigates how the, quote, war on childhood obesity has caused kids of all ages to absorb a daily onslaught of body shame from peers, school, diet culture, and parents themselves. And this book offers research-based strategies to help parents 
Name and Navigate, the Anti-Fat Bias that Infiltrates Our Schools, Doctors' Offices, and Family Dinner Tables. Virginia is a frequent contributor to The New York Times. Her work also appears in Scientific American, The New York Times Magazine, and many other publications. She writes the newsletter Burnt Toast, where she explores fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health, and also hosts the Burnt Toast podcast. Virginia lives in New York's Hudson Valley with her husband, two daughters, a cat, a dog, and way too many houseplants. Virginia Soul Smith, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. So I'm a little obsessed with your new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. In it, you dismantle so many biases that I honestly thought I had worked through. I listen religiously to Maintenance Phase. I am eagerly awaiting the Aubrey Gordon film entitled Your Fat Friend. You know, I already got rid of my bathroom scale. I thought I had done all the work I needed to do. But then you started talking about the pervasiveness of diet culture with respect to our kids And I kind of lost my mind. So this is a necessary companion for me and I think for anybody who is reckoning with, like, how their relationship with their body is going to impact their children. Oh, um, so thank you for the gift of this book. Can you just, for folks who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us why you first became interested in writing about fat phobia and anti-fat bias? The backstory on me is I was a women's magazine writer for about a decade, which is to say I was a diet culture creator. I wrote a lot of, you know, I was always, it was very much the like, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle plan (laughs) kind of diet stories. It wasn't like the full on super aggressive ones, but honestly, it's worse because it's more insidious when you're dressing it up as something else. Um, So I did that for the first 10 years or so of my career, and I never felt great about it. I always felt stressed out by trying to follow the rules I was writing about, aware that they weren't working for people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And really started to get radicalized around this issue about 10 years ago now when my first daughter was born. And I, too, kind of came up against this brick wall of like, oh, I don't want all of this in my parenting. And so my first book, The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, explores how diet culture shows up in so many different places around food and eating that you wouldn't expect it to. And so that was kind of my starting point. I think food is often the starting point for folks. But when I was out, you know, promoting that book, when it came out in 2018, I was hearing over and over from people asking me like very nitty gritty questions about their children's picky eating or what the pediatrician said about the growth chart, all these sorts of things. And the kind of through line of all of that was really people saying what you and I are both saying, which is like, okay, I thought I'd done a lot of this work. I know I don't want to replicate like the Weight Watchers and the snack wells of my childhood. Like I know I don't want it to be that, but I don't really know what else to do. And I am really scared of what will happen if I have a fat kid. And so I realized we have to start there. Like it makes sense that so many of us start with our own relationship with food, but we have to start with anti-fat bias We have to name it. We have to understand where it lives in us and in our children's lives if we're going to start to do anything differently here. Thank you for sharing that. And I should also start with a bit of disclaimer for listeners that many of us, and I'll include myself in this, have um, a tricky relationship with the word fat and with talking about fatness. Like I... I'm still trying to get comfortable using it as what you refer to as a neutral descriptor, right? Like, I am five foot four, I have brown hair, and I'm fat. It is so hard to unlearn the decades of judgment that are just packed into that word. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think part of why. I am able to use it as neutrally and even positively as I do is a function of the thin privilege I grew up with. I did not experience this word being weaponized against me as a kid because I was a thin kid. I am a fat adult. So I have had experiences as an adult where that word has been used unkindly, certainly since the book came out and a lot of trolls want to write to me. Um, I've experienced that. But 
that is not the same like deep trauma as it is when you are a child and this word is weaponized against you. So for anyone listening, just like absolutely recoiling to hear me use the word fat, like I do not intend this as harm for you. I understand that everyone needs to sort of take their own time to get there, that reclaiming the word may not ever feel safe or accessible for you. But I do think, and you know, this is what I've learned from many great fab, fat liberation activists, Aubrey Gordon, who you mentioned, um, Love. Mercedes, um, Marcus L. Mercedes, Love. you know, so many other <laughs> yes. amazing people doing this work is Reagan Chastain, you know, who always says, like, I reclaim fat because that's how I take my lunch money back from the bullies. Like, if we can take the negative connotations out of this word, then it stops holding this power over us. And then thinness stops holding this power over us. And we can just step back from the whole thing. And so I do think it is a really important place to start. But it is, yeah, it's loaded for a lot of people. And when it comes to kids, because a lot of us grew up believing that the word fat was impolite, I, I learned this from your book and relearned this from working with my own, you know, from parenting my own kids. Like, it's not unusual for us to say, you know, a kid will refer to someone as fat. You're like, that person's not fat. They're beautiful, which sounds like a great thing to say, right? But it, in your book, and for folks who haven't um, read this, that's actually demonizing fatness, isn't it? Right, because you just put fatness in opposition to beauty. You just said, like, they're not fat, they're beautiful, which means fat people can't be beautiful, question mark, uh, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. – Wrong. Fat people are beautiful. So that's – it's a totally understandable thing. I mean, the other thing parents will just rush in and say, like, that's not nice. Don't say fat. Don't say fat. And they're doing it because they're so worried about everybody's feelings. But in the process, they're not really thinking about everybody's feelings, which is now you've just told anyone who's fat that their body is not nice, that it's not okay to talk about it, that we have to pretend it's not there, you know, that we're not even really seeing them. And so – Yeah, a better way to go about those moments because I have had them too. You know, fat is a very neutral word in our house, so my kids say it all the time. So we are in the grocery store and, you know, there is the like, look at that fat lady over there, mama. And yeah, absolutely. Because you don't know how that person is taking the comment. So, you know, a better approach is to say something like, oh, yeah, bodies come in all shapes and sizes, like fat, thin, whatever. It's all great. We don't really talk about people's bodies without their permission. Like, you know, just emphasizing the consent piece of we don't talk about people's hair. We don't talk about, you know, and you would encourage, you would use that across the board with bodies. You wouldn't just make that about weight. And then you're still neutralizing fatness at the same time. Yeah, I love that. And that is, that is work to keep learning and relearning as your kids grow and change and even refer to their own bodies talking to them about, yeah, bodies come in all shapes and sizes. So despite the fact that I am all in with your book and putting my post-it notes, and one of the things I do when I'm reading a book is I talk to other people about it. And we had birthday parties recently, and we've just had stuff. And so I'm bringing up this book at the table, and I had such a hard time talking to people about this research. I mean, one of your premises is so simple, right? Bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and it is okay and normal, in fact, to be fat. But when I tried to talk about this research with my own extended family, lovely humans, um, I got so much pushback. I got responses like, um, it's just calories in and calories out. And um, if people just, you know, ate healthier, they would look healthier. And I got another one was like, um, it's just physics. You know, people oh, yeah. need to I eat love less. The phys- I love the, the physics. Physics. Perhaps. I wanted to. I mean, and again, these are people I love and shout out to my family. But it is really hard to change these mindsets. How do you do it? I mean, I had to write a hundred and twenty thousand word book, <laughs> and I don't know that we're doing it yet. Um, it is really hard. It's difficult because we're also good at taking in information, but we're not very good at critiquing the sources of our information. And we certainly like don't all stay up to date on the research and like, nor should we, I get it. People have lives and whatever, but like calories in calories out, like that has been debunked for decades at this point. Like even like the thing that that these folks need to understand is like, 
even the mainstream obesity researchers, the people who are developing Ozempic and developing bariatric surgery, the reason they're doing that is because calories in, calories out does not work. The reason they're doing that is because they have now definitively showed that body size is determined by genetics and by all of these biological processes you can't control. And since they're at the end of the spectrum that says, I still want to control the body size, they're trying to find workarounds. (laughs) And I'm over here saying, so body size isn't really something we can control. So what if we started, you know, we stopped demonizing people for that? But that's what's so interesting is people always throw back these arguments that are like 1980s pseudoscience. And it's like, even the field that you think you're on the same side as doesn't agree with you anymore. (laughs) So really, we could just put this to bed, but it's taking a very long time. No. Well, I mean, because it's so difficult to change mindsets and because you bring up the the word health, I mean, let's just unpack that because I think for a lot of people, that's their, their first thing. Well, kids can't be fat because it's unhealthy for kids to be fat. I feel like this is, I mean, for anyone who's middle-aged who grew up with the was there an obesity epidemic or not? Like, kids are bigger now. Like, if the number is, I think it's one in five that is sometimes quoted that they're considered obese, which is a problematic term in and of itself. But let's circle back just to the statement. Like, is it unhealthy for kids to be fat? It's really not. What's unhealthy is how we pathologize kids for being fat. If you are concerned about your child's long-term metabolic health, their long-term heart health, which is what everyone says, right? Everyone says, we don't want kids to be fat because they'll get type 2 diabetes and they'll get heart disease. If you are concerned about those issues, which I get, I'm concerned about those issues too. We should all be concerned about them. The best thing you can do for your child's health is to take weight out of every health-related conversation you have. And the reason for this is because we know the top predictor for future development of eating disorders is experiences of childhood dieting and childhood weight-based shaming, teasing, stigma. And if you are talking about your fat child's weight and constantly trying to manipulate their weight and putting them on a diet to lose weight, you are doing all of that. And if you are concerned about their future metabolic health, preventing eating disorders is a really great way to promote meta- – like an eating disorder will trash your metabolic health much faster than eventually developing diabetes. It can also help pave the way to that. So like this is the health crisis in front of us as parents of kids. Like what we are concerned about right now is helping them feel safe and empowered in their bodies, helping them develop a healthy relationship with food. And doing what we can to prevent eating disorders. Now, of course, there's a genetic neurological component, and we're not going to prevent every single eating disorder, but doing what we can to reduce what is really an epidemic of disordered eating. And that goes for kids in all body sizes. That is not just the fat kids. That is not just the skinny white girls who we think get anorexia. Eating disorders happen in all shapes and sizes. If we can move the needle on that, my guess is you would eventually see some improvement in those longer-term health outcomes, or at least you would not be piling a mental health crisis on top of any physical health issues that you're worried about. So there's a lot to untangle there, but fundamentally, yeah, I get it that I am also really concerned about kids' health, and the most health-promoting thing we can do is to take our focus off weight. Because, I mean, and this is another another thing to unpack, but for the vast majority of kids, and I, I suppose I could lump adults in there too, but we're focusing on children. Like for the vast majority of kids, diets do not help with long-term weight loss, correct? No. Diets don't help anybody with long-term weight loss. I mean, the studies we have on the efficacy of diets show that they have a failure rate of like between 80 and 95%. And just think like, would you put your child on a drug that had an 80 to 95% failure rate? Would you do a surgery that had an 80 to 95% failure rate? Like you would not. This is not an evidence-based protocol. And the reason is because our bodies are genetically programmed to be in certain weight ranges called your set point. And once you push yourself out of your set point, your body has all of these great defenses that kick in. Your hunger hormones rise, your metabolism slows down. Like your body is like, I am trying to get us back to baseline here. (laughs) What are you doing? And that is how we survived, you know, millennia of famines and food scarcity. And I know that people are like, but now there's too much food, blah, blah, blah. But our bodies haven't evolved to understand the difference. Your body doesn't know that you're just trying to do keto. Your body is like, okay, we're in a crisis. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to keep you safe. 
And that is a feature, not a bug. So yeah, dieting does not work. As I said, it also really increases your risk for disordered eating and eating disorders. That is also all ages, though we particularly, we see like a really strong relationship in the research around that in kids. I mean, there was one study that found that kids, teenage girls who dieted at a severe level were 18 times more likely to develop eating disorders. But even the like so-called moderate dieters, who I bet were following programs recommended by a doctor or a parent, were five times more likely to develop eating disorders. So this is not just like, a, oh, maybe a little bit of an increase. Like That is a really strong relationship. So yeah, dieting does not work. I mean, it's also just like kids are supposed to be growing and gaining weight. And we have to step back and say like, okay, there's a reason there's 100 points on the growth chart. Bodies are going to come in all shapes and sizes. Kids are going to be in the bodies they have for a lot of different reasons. But this is not like you controlling your child's place on the growth chart is not your job as a parent. And we really need to step back and let them follow these growth trajectories, let them go through puberty. I mean, weight gain during puberty is crucial. And that's often the time when doctors get really anxious about how kids' bodies change, like somehow forgetting that kids' bodies are changing. (laughs) This is a good thing. I could rant about that for a while. (laughs) And we do all these things. We're so well-intentioned as parents, but it's sort of our obsession with the fear of their fatness rather than the actual being fat themselves. So we do all these things in the name of trying to keep our kids thin. I mean, I, and I have done, like, I'm not calling out, like, I have done some of these things. I've told them, well, you can't have a cookie until you eat your broccoli. Um, we've, you know, we've we've played sports to quote unquote be healthy, but what do we mean by that? You know, right, like, right. let's run off that belly fat. I mean, kids go to school and, and you, in the book, I think you say there are 26 states that make kids be weighed. And, like, they do these activities. They have to be weighed at school, and they calculate the, the BMI. And, and doctor's offices do this to chart the kids' the kids growth, but often kind of, again, because they maybe haven't kept up with it, they, they do what they think is best, and they talk about weight management strategies. But we're, we're doing these things well-intentioned, but it turns out that so much of what we've been doing to try to keep our kids safe is actually having the opposite effect, right? Yeah, and I just want to say too, like we've all been there. And the reason we're all there and the reason our parents did this kind of stuff to us is because it is harder to be a fat kid and a fat adult. I mean, we are talking about a systemic form of oppression. It is understandable that you think if there's a fighting chance you can protect your child from that shame and stigma, you want to do that. So it comes from this really well-intentioned place of like you experience this growing up. You don't want them to experience that. You know life is easier in a thin body. But that's where we really have to flip the conversation and say, why are we trying to change that by changing our kids? Why are we not trying to make the world a better place for our kids? I mean, that's what we really want to be doing. Yeah. Oh, there's so much work to do, Virginia. I don't know. I don't know how you sleep or how you wake up. <laughs> I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. So another another um, question that came up at my table where I was ineffectual at, at trying to convince people to, to join my team was like, they're like, but but what about good nutrition? How do we teach a kid that an apple is better than an Oreo? But I feel like what I'm learning is that I don't teach a kid that an apple is better than an Oreo. That's bananas. How can how can we say that? I, we're going to get so much mail, Virginia. Talk to me about apples and Oreos here. Okay. There's a couple layers to this. When we say the apple is better, so you have to eat it first in order to get the Oreos, what kids hear is the apple is garbage, but I have to get through it to get to the Oreos that you said I couldn't have, so they must be the best thing ever. (laughs) So you've immediately like 
just your plan has backfired because all you have done is taught them not to enjoy the apple, which is delicious. Like apples are great. And to focus all their attention on the food you're putting restrictions around. This is like just human psychology 101. This is how we're all wired to respond to any kind of restrictions. Like, okay, now I want it more because you said I can't have it. Especially kids, you know, especially like just think of like the level of pushback a toddler gives you or a nine-year-old or whatever any age child gives you. Like, of course, they're going to focus on the thing. You just put all the rules around. So if you want your child to enjoy apples or whatever, I mean, it's always fruits and vegetables is what people are concerned about. What you actually want to do is neutralize all the foods and let them understand that we have You are in charge of what foods are offered at different meals, but you're going to offer the treat foods, the foods that they're fixated on, just as often as you offer the foods you're hoping they'll eat. And you're not going to sort of, like, you're keeping a level playing field. You're not going to demonize them for choosing the whatever, you know, they're having three helpings of pasta, no salad at dinner. You're going to let them sort those choices out themselves. We have some cool studies from, like, in the 1930s, back when you could do like more ethically questionable research. Um, <laughs> Here, where uh, this <laughs> zap this person with an electrical shock. Right. This pediatrician really. like <laughs> gathered up all these orphan babies and <laughs> kept them in a hospital for, I mean, this is like questionable. Mm-hmm. But she fed the orphan babies in a hospital for like two years and the it was like, you know, and watched them, I think it was a couple of years, and watched them grow up through early childhood and was regularly offering them just like a wide mix of foods and letting the kids pick what they wanted to eat. And the kids like very naturally gravitated towards all the different food groups over the course of a week, as opposed to like when you're sitting there like they haven't eaten a green vegetable in a month and oh my God, because you're like pushing them so hard and it's like this huge power struggle. So we know that there's like something innate in humans that we're, because we're omnivores, we're pretty good at seeking out variety and the kids will do it if we're not pressuring them around this and making the power struggle. And what you'll really see happen is it's not, I mean, like I use the word treat because there are foods that are just joyful and fun to eat and, you know, and that doesn't mean that the salad's not joyful. It just means I get excited about chocolate and that's fine because food is, food is joy and that's, that's valid. But my kids understand that when we're having treats, we're not having to earn them. We're not having to atone for them, right? There's no like, oh, now I have to do more exercise or eat differently tomorrow. And because there's not this whole framework around treat as a like forbidden, indulgent, you're being bad concept, they have their treats, they enjoy them, they move on. And they don't get hyper fixated. They don't inhale the entire bag of Oreos because they know the Oreos will be there and they can have more tomorrow and it's totally fine. But that's, you know, it's a tricky process if you're used to thinking of food in this very binary way to start to move towards thinking of food as primarily what's going to taste good, what's going to fill you up. And the other thing is, you know, there are times where an apple is not enough food, right? Like you would be better off eating a bunch of cookies or some cake or something that would actually fill you up more than just having some strawberries or what, you know, so like, it's also, we also need to question when we say like, is it better? It's better in certain contexts. It's better if you're trying to, you know, get more fiber today. Is that the entire goal of eating for you every day of your life? No, of course not. If it is your birthday, birthday cake is a better food. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> and so we have to like really kind of unpack what we mean when we say better and understand that there are lots of situations where the better food is not the, quote, most nutritious food, but that still makes it like the right nutrition choice for you, right? That, you know, if you are spending your evenings driving your kids around to like a million sports practices and you need to eat dinner in the car and you don't have time to pack anything because you just came from work and you're having one of those like Wednesdays where you question all your life choices, (laughs) like the drive-through is the right choice for dinner. It is the better choice because there is no other choice, right? And even if there were other choices, like it's fine that you're choosing the drive-through. This gets everyone fed. This makes dinner happen. We get through the day. It's great. And when we layer all that guilt on, you know, we're just ignoring the tremendous amount of privilege that goes into being able to eat in the sort of quote, perfect, healthy way, the amount of labor that goes into all that home cooking and from scratch preparation. It's also not terribly well aligned with kids' developmental trajectories around food. It's very normal and developmentally appropriate for kids to be pickier at various stages of childhood. 
and for them to crave carbohydrate-dense foods because that's their source of energy and their brains need a lot of glucose to grow. And when we like put our sort of diet culture agenda in on top of that, again, all we do is create the power struggles. Yeah, and I got to thinking about um, food as something – control and food that we – that as a parent, if I am trying to control access to food, that I'm inadvertently teaching my kids that food is something that needs to be controlled, that 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 the idea of counting out almonds or or logging calories, that that would I've taught them that I've taught them that that food needs to be controlled and that that you again, you're with the best of intentions, we pass these things along to to our kids. And we're teaching them, don't trust your own body. Don't trust what you're hungry. Your body's saying it's hungry, but I'm saying you've had enough. You know, or your body's saying you're full and I'm saying you haven't eaten enough salad. Like, so we're teaching them to disconnect from what their body says. And yeah, that is the like, this is the pipeline to diet culture, right? Because all of the diet industry rests on the premise that you cannot trust your body to get it right around food. And so you need to pay money for their books and products and do it their way. And so I do think it's helpful. It can be a helpful mindset shift to realize, again, when we're thinking about promoting kids' health, when we're thinking about, oh, preventing eating disorders is actually a bedrock of promoting health, taking your focus off nutrition is also health-promoting. Because when you take your focus off nutrition in that like super amped up, anxious way, you can instead focus on body autonomy, which is also like fundamental to good health in just all of the ways. And for parents who are afraid that from then on out, all their children will do is eat buckets of donuts, that it is likely that if you do make this shift, that yes, in the beginning, they might gravitate toward the thing you told them that was oh, forbidden, yeah, right? The yeah. bad boyfriend food that you're like, oh, give me more of that because <laughs> she said it was so bad. But then eventually they their bodies would be like, okay, well, I'm done with – like I'm, I'm sick of those. I don't that, – that they will recalibrate. Yeah, it's called habituation and our bodies are really good at habituating to foods. This is why – it is not actually biologically possible to be addicted to food the way you can be addicted to alcohol or, you know, drugs. Like, this is a different pathway. We don't actually have that same response. We do, like, our dopamine centers light up. We have we experience pleasure around food, but we experience pleasure the way people experience pleasure when they see a puppy, and no one's like, I'm a puppy addict, and I need to go to meetings. Like, it's not the same thing. Um <laughs> So I would totally we, go to a puppy addiction meeting. That would I mean, be adorable. Everyone would have their pictures and maybe you could like bring the dogs with you. <laughs> well, not if you're trying to achieve puppy abstinence. But <laughs> oh, I throw that meeting That off, may not then. have been the most perfect analogy I ever came up with. But. I'm just now I'm all thinking about the puppies. It's all good. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, but habituation happens with food. You eat as much of something as your brain actually wants to receive of it. And then it's like, okay, I've had enough. I can move on. And I think, you know, the one footnote I want to give that is I think sometimes that gets, that message gets distorted into another kind of diet culture where people are like, oh, okay, so if I just let them eat what they want, pretty soon they won't want sugar anymore and we'll be a sugar-free house. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's not going to turn it off completely. That's not the goal. It's just you're not going to see kids sneaking food. You're not going to see kids like anxiously binging on food when it's finally available because you didn't let them have cupcakes at the last three birthday parties and you finally said yes. Like it's a less fraught way of enjoying food. That's what we're going for. Yeah. So again, so much unlearning and relearning and baby steps through that. I've been working on and and watching a child take more than one ice cream bar and not saying anything was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I'm so glad you did, though. That's awesome. It just it just happened the one time, and the next time it was no ice cream bars, and like it it, it was okay. But I had to sit on my hands because I was going to swat it, or I was going to go into like grandma. But what do you think you're taking? But again, the kids are okay. I got to get out of their way sometimes. The kids are okay. Something else you suggest in the book that I actually tried and did very very poorly at my first time, but I, so. It turns out we're allowed to refuse to be weighed at the doctor's office. You know how they like the first thing that you do is go in there and inevitably, if you had a scale in your house, you always weighed five pounds more at the doctor's office. Didn't matter if you were wearing shoes or not. And you just like, 
at least for me, like the first thing you did at the doctor's office is like feel bad. Right. And so I did it. I went to the doctor's office and they said, step on the scale. And I'm like, no. Yes. <laughs> and I like refused to move. And it was like a toddler throwing a tantrum. And then the person looked hurt. And then I'm oh, like, no. I mean, just, and like, what I mean to say, and then I just like blathered about like, how I'd weighed myself, whatever, two months ago. And like, I, I would like, I told them the weight anyway. So I didn't do <laughs> what <laughs> I only had the one try and I was awkward. And then, um, so, so to recap, it is actually okay not to be weighed at the doctor's office, but how can I do that in a more polite, less Charlie Chaplin esque way than I did? <laughs> I mean, I think it's awkward for everyone the first time because it is, again, you're bucking against the system that has told you, like, this is how it works. We get on the conveyor belt at the doctor's office and, like, you get on the scale and then you get the blood pressure. Um, I have found – there's so there's a couple things I want to say about this. But the top line thing is I have found if I walk in and they say step on the scale and I say, no, thank you, they say, oh, okay, and move on to the blood pressure. And that is all. That is in almost every situation, all I've ever had to say is just, oh, no, thank you. Sometimes I add on, like, I'm not doing scales today or, you know, just something very quick, cheerful, polite, no sweating, no need to be panicking, just no thank you. Now, I do want to caveat this with I am fat, but I identify as small fat, which is to say I'm on the lower end of the spectrum. Like, I'm, I have an obese BMI, but the lower end of that range Um and that comes with some privilege, right? Like I am not the level of fat where the second I walk in the room, my body is weaponized against me in a lot of those settings. And so it doesn't feel safe or available for everyone to say a cheery no thank you and expect zero pushback. And so if you are someone who has a lot of trauma around this, like maybe bringing a friend with you for support, maybe sending a note ahead of time, or if you can send like an email through your patient portal um, or have it on a post-it note that you hand over um, at the check-in or hand to the nurse, like something like that that makes it a little easier for you. Or even just recognize like, I'm going to get on the scale because I have bigger, you know, fish to fry in this appointment. Like, I don't want this to become a, a sticking point. Like if I need to get their support on something else, like that's totally reasonable. You have to do whatever feels safe and accessible to you. But if you are small fat or straight size, you know, you don't wear plus size clothings, you almost always will not experience pushback about this. If you do experience pushback, the most likely thing they'll say is, oh, insurance requires it, which is a myth. It doesn't. <laughs> so you can just say, oh, just write patient declined. What are they going to do? It is actually illegal for them to force you to do anything in a doctor's office without your informed consent. So if you are not giving that consent, they are going to move on. And I say this not to sound anti-doctor. Doctors are amazing, but they are baked into this system that tells them to like measure everything around vitals, specifically around BMI. And we have a lot of evidence showing that BMI is not a useful measure of health. And I can tell you both firsthand and in terms of what we see in the research, when you take BMI out of the conversation, you actually have a much more supportive doctor's visit because they now have to ask you questions. <laughs> and talk to you like you are a person about your health. And it, you have just like a much more richer, more nuanced conversation because it's not just, oh, I saw your BMI. I made this whole set of assumptions about you. You know, if you're thin, they might look at your BMI and just assume you're healthy, right? Just assume you're eating vegetables and exercising and maybe you're not at all. And that would be a beneficial conversation. Or maybe you're at that low BMI because you've restricted yourself there and they need to be investigating that. So there's like all these ways that focusing on BMI serves nobody of any body size. Um, and yeah, you can opt out and you can even, you know, with kids, it's a little trickier. There are times where knowing our kids' weight is useful, like car seats, transitions, medicine, um, you know, and just in general, you want to know that kids are growing and that means gaining weight. But you still, you know, when you go, when I take my five-year-old in for her 97th ear infection appointment of the season, I say, oh, we don't need to do the scale today because we don't need to talk about her weight when we're there for an ear infection. Yeah, so that was another thing I learned from your book was that even if they do decide to weigh the kids, because I had a, a, my middle daughter had some uh, feeding issues when she was a baby, and that was absolutely our indicator, that if she was yeah. not growing, like, we, it, it is imperative sometimes to know if a child is not 
growing at the rate they should be because that is a sign that something's wrong. And I know that you two had a, a situation with your daughter where knowing their their size was important to that. But if it's not, like, again, my, my son has a sore throat today. If we if we go to the doctor, it, it, his weight is not important today. All we need no. to know is, is it tonsillitis and do the tonsils right. need to Yeah. yeah. Um, and that you do you have the right, not just the right, but but I want to even say like the duty as a parent to advocate for your child in these conversations that don't need to be about weight. The doctor can can write it on the growth chart. Usually our, our scale at the doctor's office seems to be in like the metric system anyway. So we don't know what that, we don't have to know what the numbers <laughs> are. Helpful. You know, yeah. it's it's fine. Yeah, because when I think about my own transition as a kid, you know, I was a dancer and a, a sports kid and I, you know, I remember, I almost remember the day, but I remember looking in the mirror and I had, you know, developed a butt and boobs. Like it felt like overnight. And my ballet teacher was always asking me to like tuck in my butt, not to move my hips during the rond de jambes. And no amount of tucking and cinching at that age of probably 11, you know, could make me be different. And even though I liked ballet, I loved ballet, I quit. Because I learned that I didn't belong there. I was, and I wasn't a fat kid, but I was too fat to be there, which is also funny because when I look back on pictures of myself from that time through high school, even though the lesson I learned was that I was fat, I I think two things at the same time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm beautiful. And why did I think I was fat? These, These stories that we learned, they... They stick, and so I wasn't. Um, I wasn't a fat kid. I was. A, I was a perfectly, you know, regular kid. But I grew up believing myself to be fat, and now as an adult, you know, three kids later, a pandemic later, I am much heavier now than I ever was, and I um, am still trying to reconcile that that's okay, and I'm. I'm not there yet on learning to love this body. I'm, it's, it's a, you'll be okay. And then you'll see yourself in a picture with like a double, you know how you like the chin and then like the, whatever you call this on your arms. And then I'm right back in that ballet class. And I'm, you know, um, how does a person learn to love their body? Well, one thought I had while you were telling that story. And I just really feel for 11-year-old you in that ballet class and how that should never, ever have been the message you experienced. And you're looking back at those photos now and you're saying, oh, wait, I wasn't even fat. You know, this is ridiculous. Even if you'd been fat, it wasn't okay for you to experience that. Fat kids are excluded from things like ballet and sports all the time because their bodies are not safe or welcome in those spaces. And so a big turning point we need to make here is to shift from, and I wasn't even fat, or, you know, the sort of personal stuff we're dealing with, and realize we're talking about systemic oppression. And while that doesn't solve the negative feelings you have about, like, that is, like, your trauma, and it is real, and you deserve support for it, I think it is helpful to realize If I keep buying into that system, if I keep letting that ballet teacher win in my own internal dialogue in my head, in you know, if that's the voice I'm hearing when I'm looking in the mirror at my body three kids later in the stage of life where I am not trying to be an 11-year-old ballerina anymore, (laughs) like if that's still the loudest voice in my head, then I am in a way like letting myself be complicit in this whole system I don't want to be a part of. You don't want any 11-year-old to feel that way in a ballet class. So it starts with doing our own work and then pushing outwards and saying, like, what are we doing to make ballet, to make classrooms, to make sports teams safe and inclusive for kids in all bodies? And I have found it helps to just be reminded, like, this is not my value. My value is that all bodies are beautiful and that all bodies are valuable and that our value is not our body. And that is, like, my core truth. So when that noise starts, it's like, oh, wait, that's... That's the ballet teacher. She's done. We're not, she's not hired anymore. No, our value is not our body. So I'm thinking about this and the kinds of comments I know you must receive, Virginia, for just doing this work. How do you keep yourself safe and mentally healthy enough to keep at it? You know, it's interesting. I do get a lot of 
pretty hateful comments, like emails, DMs, and it certainly increased since the book came out. Um, but I will say the overwhelming response is positive. And so every time I've like blocked five trolls, I've probably also gotten like some lovely heartfelt, like one woman emailed me this morning and was like, I literally just put down the book and had to email you that minute. And I was like, I want to cry. Like I've never, yay. I know that feeling when you read something that you connect with that deeply. And that means so much. Um, and there's also, you know, more practically speaking, I'm hearing from researchers saying they want to reevaluate their study protocols wow. around weight and health. I'm hearing from pediatricians and other doctors saying, thank you. We need to be rethinking how we approach this with patients. We need to improve our language choices. Um, I'm hearing, you know, a whole bunch of health teachers came to one of my book events and were like, we're trying to redo our curriculums. Like, so I'm seeing that. And so that really... That's the why, and that's what I'm in it for. And, you know, the guy who emailed whatever hateful thing he just emailed, um, he does not matter. That's fine. I don't owe him any response. Um, But the other thing, too, is just, like, having to find ways to step out of it, you know? Like, this weekend, I really took myself off social media, like, gardened furiously for hours. I'm a big gardener and just, like, planted, planted, planted. And, you know, I need that kind of, like, mind erasing, like, can't pick up the phone because you're covered in dirt and, like, just be away from it for a little bit. Um, And that really helps. I like that. uh, Helps me come back. Dirt is the solution. That's great. Dirt is the solution. (laughs) Um, We always close with just some, um, a lightning round here, just a few multiple choice just to to be fun and to get at some things we didn't get at before. So you just pick one, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Oh, that's like the fight of my marriage, just <gasps> so you know. Really? Do tell. My husband is my husband is all mountains, and I am more <laughs> of a beach person. So our compromise is lakes. Okay. Because you can often find like a lake near with mountains. <laughs> I love it. So option C, lakes. <laughs> uh, dogs or cats? I would have said cats for the longest time until my daughter talked me into a puppy, and she's sleeping here next to me, and oh. she's the best girl ever. So... Now both. All right, we'll put you down for both. Boxed brownie mix or those cookies that you slice and bake? Oh, boxed brownie mix. We make it like every week in my house. It's a religion. I love it. For sure. Would you rather try on 50 pairs of shoes or 50 pairs of jeans? God, definitely shoes. (laughs) (laughs) I did try on 50 pairs of jeans for the newsletter, and I'm never doing it again. (laughs) I was was reading it – and it was what was so funny about that is is like you weren't even pretending like out of those 50 pairs of jeans was it i feel like it was like two it was it, was, yeah. it wasn't even like Correct. um and they're not even no. that they're fine <laughs> there's no good jeans all the jeans are bad i can tell you this i tried them all on they're all bad <laughs> that was amazing it was amazing um are you an early bird or a night owl definitely early bird are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are ah uh, band-aids wanted to be cool for a minute but i mean i think it's cool to know where those band-aids are someone's gotta know yeah if you could time travel would you rather go back or forward Ooh, that's hard i don't i think both i think both i can't pick i'd want to go back to like i'd want to go hang out with jane austen but then i also want to get to the point where we can teleport so i'm never late for stuff anymore so a little bit of both i like it all right if you fill in the blanks here if i wasn't working as a writer and I had a little magic, I would be a... Probably some kind of garden designer. Nice. With Jane Austen. I think she, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's something yeah. quirky that folks don't always know about you? Likes, loves, pet peeves? I've told so many quirky things about myself. I'm out of quirks. I have no good quirks left. Um, I've been eating the same breakfast for like 15 years now. Oh my gosh, what does Virginia Soul Smith eat for breakfast? We all want to know. Actually, it's not 15. I ate, so from the age of eight until 33, I ate peanut butter toast with banana on top for breakfast. And then I switched. Now I make a really big smoothie, like a really big smoothie that I'm obsessed with. And I've been eating that for the last almost 10 years. Does it have collagen in it or not? Definitely not. <laughs> Does have chocolate though. Nice. Um, What do you love about where you live? I live in the Hudson Valley. So um, from about November to March, I question all my life Mm -hmm. choices because we have a terrible winter Mm -hmm. and I call it stick season and it's just brown and miserable. But (laughs) it is now green and glorious and there is no more beautiful place in the world. So I love our spring and our fall. Nice. 
What's one of your favorite books? Well, Emma by Jane Austen, since we just time-traveled me, is probably my all-time favorite. That's a good choice. Um, How about a favorite movie or television series? Favorite movie of all time is Two for the Road with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. Television series, I would say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but with many caveats for how problematic the institution turned out to be. But I believe in Buffy. (laughs) I love it. What's your favorite ice cream? Chocolate fudge brownie. Lovely. All right, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, probably me, again, covered in dirt in my garden um, with my kids running around. Yep, that's my happy place. Perfect. I love it. Virginia Soul Smith, thank you so much for making time today. Oh, thank you. This was a delight. Well, you wrote that, quote, fat people are worthy of respect, safety, and dignity, no matter what their health status. Period. There is no but in that sentence. Fat people are worthy of respect, safety, and dignity. Thank you for fighting for all of us. Thank you for teaching us how to fight for ourselves. Thank you for the gift of your work and this world that you're trying to create. Thank you. That means so much. Well, I'm grateful. Folks, Virginia Soul Smith's most recent book is called Fat Talk. Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. You can find it wherever books are sold. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrub and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.